welcome to the Empowering Agency Workers, a podcast for all temporary workers. If you're unsure of your rights, unsure how to find work, or just plain unsure, we're here to help. It's all too easy to be exploited, so your expert host, Julia Kermode, will empower you to succeed. Welcome to today's podcast. Um, I'm really pleased to have with me Carla Roberts, who's director of WTT Legal. And today we're talking about statements of work and everything that's happening out there since the off payroll changes came in earlier this year in April. So really warm welcome, Carla. Really pleased to have you here with with us. Um, Could you just give a very brief introduction about yourself? Well, Julia, thank you for having me. And I will try to keep it brief, but I have been around for a long time. So it depends, <laughs> depends how long we've, we've got to, to go into my background. But very quickly, um, I qualified in California, as you can tell from my accent as a lawyer back in the 80s, moved over here in the 90s, did my transfer qualification and became a compliance manager in an insurance um, call center. So that compliance uh, background um, was was uh, very uh, easy to adapt to going in in-house with a legal team because uh, obviously mm-hmm. compliance and legal are kind of intertwined nowadays. So I became head of legal for a recruitment company called Gattaca PLC and was there for eight years uh, and subsequently went to Alexander Mann Solutions, which is a large RPO MSP provider uh, where I was senior legal counsel. And three years ago, um, myself and my partner started a um, ABS, which is an alternative business structure um, regulated by the SRA. And we are now a law firm specializing in statement of work and dealing with contractor issues. Okay, great. And um, it's worth saying for our listeners that your recruitment background, both the recruitment companies you work with are very well known, very good, very good pedigree, um, I would say in the recruitment space. So um, you really do know your stuff about about all of this um, space. So I guess starting off with, um, well, actually, before we get into the statement of work, what what I think would be really useful is to very briefly talk about the different ways that contractors may be engaged by recruitment agencies, because that in itself is a source of confusion, isn't it? So, um, so have let's let's have a very quick canter through through that, if that's okay. Right. Well, when a client needs to increase headcount, obviously they have the option to hire directly a permanent employee, mm. which is paid a salary by the client. But if they only need somebody on a temporary basis, they can either hire a fixed term employee, which again is an employee paid by them, but they've got to be very careful because if they extend that more than four times, that employee uh, acquires employment rights. So um, I think a lot of clients feel that it is much better for them from a compliance perspective to, and from a financial perspective, to outsource to an, an agency to uh, yeah. to uh, find appropriate contingent workers for them. So the types of contingent workers are your typical agency PAYE temps, which are now deemed inside IR35. These would be engaged and paid by the agency on an hourly or daily basis. The agency assumes the responsibility for sourcing, vetting, and payrolling those temps. And generally, they'll provide indemnities to the clients, but the temp remains under the supervision, direction, and control of the end client. Um, 
there's obviously circumstances where an agency doesn't have the capability or doesn't want to payroll. So they will, in those circumstances, outsource that obligation to an umbrella company. And again, that worker would be a typical traditional PAYE temp working inside IR35. But in those circumstances, they are employed on an overarching contract of employment. Um, going from assignment to assignment to assignment. Um, The agency remains responsible for sourcing and vetting. However, in this circumstance, the umbrella is responsible for employing and payrolling. Um, The client, again, will flow down all the indemnities to the agency. The agency will flow down those indemnities to the umbrella. And the temp remains under the supervision, direction, and control of the end client. Now, the next model is your agency PSC contractor. Now, these contractors generally have specialist skills. And in the last 20 years, they have been working on what we call an outside IR35 basis. I'm sure everybody's familiar with that. These contractors would be engaged and paid by the agency on an hourly daily basis. Um, The contract's more onerous than the uh, PAY temp contract because it's considered a business-to-business relationship. So the contractor will need to indemnify the agency for defective work. Um, There'll be restrictive covenants in the contract. And more importantly, the contract will reflect the fact that they are working autonomously, will not be under the supervision, direction, and control of either the agency or the end client and have the ability to um, use a substitute. Before we move on, um, it's probably worth saying that PSC stands for Personal Services Company. Um, And so it's anyone working through their limited company. Like if it was me, I might work through Julia Kermode Limited or Joe Bloggs Limited or whatever it it might be. And, And, you know, of course that... That terminology has been used a lot recently, and a lot of people don't understand exactly what it means. Now, of course, with the implementation of the off-payroll legislation in April, um, this this structure has been, or this model, has been hugely affected by um, the new legislation. And as a result of that legislation, the client now is responsible for making the assessment of that contractor's IR35 status. Previously, the contractor himself was responsible for that. So the client, if he is medium or large, and the criteria I think is that they need to be, um, the turnover needs to be in excess of 10 million, 5.1 in gross assets and 50 employees. They must Mm -hmm. conduct a status determination statement to deem whether or not that contractor or that role will be inside or outside IR35. Yeah. And then pass that status determination down to the agency and the contractor. Now, if they don't use reasonable care, they will remain liable for any tax issues that may arise as a result of an incorrect determination. But if they do use reasonable care, then the tax liability sits with the fee payer, which is the agency. So um, obviously off payrolls had a huge effect on uh, contractors working um, on that basis. Now, the only other type of contractor is a PSC contractor, personal services contractor working outside IR35 who engages directly with the client. So there's no agency involved. 
And in that scenario, that contractor will be engaged and paid by the client directly on an hourly, daily basis. But once again, the same rules apply. If the client is medium or large size, it will need to conduct a status determination and give that to the contractor. Okay, so that I think that that was probably about five different ways that that you can be engaged as a contingent worker with um with your clients. So it's a quite quite a bit for people to to get their heads around. Um, and so in terms of of that engagement, um, we 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 wanted to focus today on statements of work. Um, what exactly? is a statement of work, first of all? Well, a statement of work, to be blunt, it simply involves just delivering the services themselves on an outcome basis with milestones, a fixed price payment that's um, payable upon achieving deliverables, which are based upon acceptance criteria, which has been agreed between the party. And that agreement will all be formulated in a document called a statement of work, which is attached generally to a master services agreement, which is the overarching terms and conditions, the legal aspects. But the statement of work sets out the commercial terms. So the payment criteria, the acceptance criteria, any client dependencies, the milestones that need to be achieved before payment can be made and the deliverables. Mm. And it needs to be very, very specific because if anything goes wrong, the parties will refer back to that to see what that says. And if there's any ambiguity, you know, as, as you can imagine, um, it can cause um, a, a dispute. Yeah. So um, yeah. it's very important that it is a very specific and covers all sorts of scenarios and caveats. Yeah, and I might be, I, I almost certainly am oversimplifying it, actually. In my mind, it, it to me, it almost means like a very detailed project plan. Um, the basis on when you achieve those objectives, then then payment terms are kind of interwoven with, with those de- deliverables. Am, am I oversimplifying it? And I'd really don't mean to because it's it's not actually anywhere near as simple as as, I, as I've just said but um but that's my idiot proof um uh, overview if if you like no that's absolutely correct it's project based work where the contractors working for a consultancy um, control and manage the entire project so it's, yeah it's absolutely crucial with a genuine statement of work that the client relinquishes control to the consultancy. So basically it's an outsourced arrangement where the client is handing over a project to specialists and saying, get on with it. And the client does need to relinquish control. And that is a fundamental element of a genuine statement of work. If they start getting involved in vetting the contractors or supervising them in any way, then, um, you know, they run the risk that it will not be a genuine statement of work. Yeah, and I think this is probably where the difficulties come in. So, um, so uh, I'm assuming we've seen an increase in statements of work since the of payroll changes came in. And I think that one of the reasons for that, and obviously you'll know much better than me because you're at the coalface, is that people see it as um, a magic answer to, to of payroll because by definition, as we've just said, 
the, it is a genuine outsourced service. Therefore, it, it IR35 is not likely to be applicable because the people owning the work, if you like, are the contractors or the the contract the contracted party rather than the client. Um, so I I I'm assuming that's the driving force behind the increase in it, and we need to get into a bit of detail around where where the problems are. But is that is that broadly what you've seen since April? Yeah, absolutely. And statement of work has, has been around for, for years. But I, yes, I think that um, it just hasn't been um, that popular because of the fact that in the UK, we've had this sort of hybrid arrangement where personal service companies could be used on a time and materials basis. Mm-hmm. But in other countries, in the United States and Germany, for example, there are only two ways of engaging temporary workers, either as a traditional temp, similar yeah. to the ones that we just talked about, who are paid on a PAYE basis, or under a genuine statement of work. So I think that this country now is adapting to that change, and certainly as a result of the fallout of, of off payroll, um, they are starting to embrace it because that is the way that the market is moving. And change is always necessary because market demands yeah. change. But sometimes it takes something seismic, shake up the way things have been done. And quite often the seismic event is legislation. And that's what's yeah. happened here. Absolutely. And I think um, from my perspective, from what I've seen, is that clients are kind of willing to in the idea behind statements of work but perhaps when it comes to actually relinquishing control of the work that they are getting done and contracting out um perhaps the, the practicalities are slightly different is is that um your experience yeah i think uh, as we were talking about before julia before we started this podcast mm. i think a lot of clients don't understand statement of work and they're yeah. still trying to do status determinations on consultancies so they're muddying they're muddying the waters and that's that's a risky thing to do they need to understand how it works the fact that it's a completely outsourced model like if they engaged a catering company to come in and to provide you know restaurant food for their staff it's exactly the same thing as that you wouldn't get involved in telling that staff how to do it Uh, They can certainly give specifications and they need to give specifications of of what the um, work is going to involve, but they can't get involved in supervising or directing the consultancy staff because consultancy staff are the experts. Yeah, yeah. And that's why they've been engaged. Absolutely. And I guess this is where sorting out those deliverables and getting that um, uh, plan really robust at the outset is going to give the clients peace of mind in terms of exactly what services they're buying in and what that means in in practical terms. And I guess that must be a very time-consuming part of the process. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the negotiation of the master services agreement can can take weeks and weeks. Mm. And Obviously, clients need to make sure that they have appropriate indemnities in place. I mean, we are seeing some very onerous terms mm. in some of the 
contracts with warranties that go on, you know, for 12 months or indefinitely uh, with uh, indemnities that are extremely onerous, unlimited liability, acceptance criteria that is too broad that basically says we'll accept the work when we want to. So that's why it's very important that as a contractor or as a consultancy, whether you're small or large, that you get legal advice you make sure that the contract is fit for purpose. You can expect it to be tough because obviously it's a business to business relationship and you are going to be responsible for remedying defective work, yeah. having a reasonable warranty period in there. And you aren't going to get paid until the client has accepted it, but you need to make sure that it's reasonable yeah. and that you know, there is acceptance criteria, that there's a a reasonable change control process because things change during project Mm -hmm. projects and the parties need to have a process that they can follow to make sure that that change can be agreed and if it can't that there's an expert determination process to be followed so it's really important to scrutinize your contracts very closely to make sure that you know everything's going to go smoothly yeah and to make sure that that you know it's it's realistic expectations on on kind of both sides um in terms of the indemnities that that you're seeing um we were chatting before we got started and i was recently asked by an agency who had been asked to indemnify their client um in, in in, in this kind of process. And I said, well, hang on a minute, the client can't really delegate the responsibility for determining status because that is their legal um, responsibility. But then we were talking about the indemnities just before we, we started. Um, and so what what's what can what can be done to give clients peace of mind and what what's happening out there in relation to this at the moment? Well, the clients, the end clients or customers as we're calling them now because yeah. there's a lot of confusion with terminology can delegate the SDS process to the agency. However, they remain legally liable for it if it's incorrect. Um, But there's nothing to stop them from asking the agency to indemnify them. And there's nothing to stop the agency from asking the consultancy to indemnify them. So we are seeing indemnities being flowed right down through the supply chain. Mm. And that's why it's so important that if you are being asked to indemnify someone, especially if it's, you know, a um, onerous indemnity mm. and some of them, you know, are unlimited liability, which I would really push back on, yeah. um, that you make sure you have the appropriate insurance in place. You kind of mentioned a couple of times unlimited liability. Now, let's just pause and think about that. That's yeah. massive, isn't it? Um, and I can see that when you're in a rush to getting your contracts agreed, that you might accidentally sign up to that. But it's a massive, well, I would say red flag. Um, but you know, you, you can agree to it if, if, if that's if that's your choice to agree to it. But would, would an insurer actually cover unlimited um, liability? Um, question you might not have an answer to, to be, to be yeah, honest. No, but, no um, I do have an answer to that. Oh, great, great. No insurance company will cover you for unlimited liability. Yeah, it's Absolutely bananas, isn't not. it? No, they, they need to limit how much they're on the hook for. And yeah. I thought it was interesting how you said that you might accidentally sign up to unlimited yeah. liability. Yes, it's very 
uh, possible that you can sign up to it accidentally because some of these contracts are drafted in a way to, to trip you up. Um, right. You'll find the indemnity sometimes located in a clause that you wouldn't expect it to be in. I mean, it's nice if they're all in the indemnities and liabilities clause, but you <laughs> have to read every single clause. There may be a clause, yeah. for example, on anti-bribery. And mm-hmm. you know, it's boilerplate stuff. So most people don't read it. We all know that none of us yeah. should be going around bribing people or accepting yeah. things. Yeah. But we have found that quite often there's an indemnity stuck in there and it will yep. be unlimited. It will be unlimited. So there'll be a carve out from a limit of liability, which will probably be in the liability clause where it will say Mm. your limit of liability for claims um, or acts or omissions or negligence or breach of contract is 5 million pounds. And then you go Mm. under that that anti-bribery clause and it will say um, this, uh, the limit of liability in clause 11, which was the liability clause does not apply to (laughs) the indemnity provided by the agency in this clause. So yeah, it is very, very important to scrutinize those contracts very closely to make sure there are no carve outs for a a cap. Because at the end of the day, you only have insurance to a set amount, whether that's 2 million for your PI or 5 million. And the Mm. insurance company isn't interested in anything over and above that. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, it's kind of very mad in a sense for the clients to look to impose that. But I guess they're they're trying um, to obviously safeguard their business. I mean, I I can't see any reason to justify that, to be honest, because it's it just makes the arrangement very uncommercial for the for the other party. Um, It could. could, Sorry, Julia, but it could ultimately end up being a situation where your insurance company pays out so you have five million you've mm. had a massive data protection breach for example where yeah. the end clients had to pay all their customers as a result of the negligence oh, of the consultancy yeah. you paid out your five million and then you will end up having to close your company because yeah you will need to tap up whatever um you know assets yeah. you've, you've got in the company so we find that the uncapped areas of liability generally tend to be data protection where there are huge fines if you get mm. that wrong mm. anti-bribery again the fines and penalties are massive ipr and confidentiality those four areas you tend to find a lot of uncapped liability okay. so i would advise you if you are faced with a contract where that is being asked of you to push back um, as hard as you can. And if you can't get that out, try to negotiate some carve outs. So carve out um, liabilities where they've caused the problem or a third party, you shouldn't be indemnifying them if they've caused the problem. Carve out indirect and consequential losses, because if you're just Mm -hmm. limiting it to direct losses, then the, the pool will be smaller again. Yeah. So it's a matter of, of you know looking at those clauses and carving out 
um, anything that's unreasonable and, and really narrowing that indemnity as much as possible. Actually, that's really helpful. Those are two very helpful points that, that actually the client would be incredibly unreasonable to, to push back on on either of those, you know, when, when it's kind of their fault and or indirect um, consequences. Um, in terms of these statements of work, um, from our conversation, it sounds like they are generally provided by the client. Is it worth the contractor ever trying to provide their their kind of statement of work to the client and kind of um, working on two two versions to kind of amalgamate them in into one that they're both happy with because I'm just thinking if clients are providing these contracts and sneaking in these awful unlimited liabilities then maybe contractors would be better safeguarded to try the opposite approach and and supply their own terms oh absolutely if, if you can use your own master services agreement then I would encourage you to do so but Quite often with larger clients, they will want to impose their own terms and conditions. They've yeah. got a legal team that will say, take it or leave it. These are our terms yeah. and you know, these are what the board has agreed to. Um, but obviously you have to do your best to, to negotiate those then. Yeah. But if you can use yeah. your own master services agreement, which is a pro supplier one, then uh, yes, I would encourage you to do so because you're okay. in a much better place then. Yeah, I, I thought it was perhaps a bit unrealistic um, of my aspiration there to, <laughs> to kind of resolve the <laughs> resolve the problem um, in in that in that way. And I guess the other thing from the client's perspective um, and also from the contractor's perspective, actually, we said we're going to call clients customers. So sorry, from the customer's <laughs> perspective, um, they also need to bear in mind that actually their template um, statement of work won't be applicable um, for, for all arrangements. And actually, by virtue of what we said at the very beginning, that, that deliverables need to be agreed in objectives, etc., then they have to spend the time, obviously, um, tailoring them to each and every situation, don't they? Um, and is is that kind of apparent um, to, to clients at the moment? No, quite often they will pull out a contract contract that is not fit for purpose it's for the supply of goods when we're looking at a supply of services yeah um, there'll be something about supply of equipment um, it's just completely inappropriate there'll be clauses about them supervising staff or vetting staff um, yeah so you hit the nail on the head and the, yeah. you know they but again comes down to negotiating power if you yeah you know persuade them to use your terms then obviously that, that's much, much better. So it sounds like in some situations, the kind of seasoned contractor who's been around in this space for a while is sometimes hand-holding their clients to get these legal agreements um, sorted. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Clients yeah. just still don't have their head around what a statement of work should look like and the importance of it being... Um, delivered uh, in a compliant manner and the contractual terms have to reflect that so even though the working practices are the most important aspect of a statement of work the contract also has to reflect the fact that it's you know based on milestones it's based on a fixed price there'll be no vetting involved etc so um, it, it, you've got to get it right yeah um, and I guess it 
I think earlier in our conversation, we said something about, um, it, you know, the, the negotiation period. And I guess, I mean, I'm guessing, would it take a month in generally, generally from start to finish to getting this stuff sorted? I mean, I, it obviously depends on the availability of the whoever's leading on the client side and your own availability as the contractor. But um uh, as a as a guide, is, is there any such thing as a guide? It must vary all the time. Yeah, it does vary. It depends on how big mm. the customer is. If it's a large yeah. organization, it's got to go through so many hurdles to be signed yeah. off by the business unit, to be signed off by the legal team. Although saying mm. that statement of work tends to be much more efficient because it's not involved with HR. So it doesn't involve the headcount increase. Uh, And so that that makes it generally much easier to get through. Um, You know, generally it involves doing a request for proposal, getting bids in. But these type of arrangements Mm -hmm. usually go through procurement or the business units, and they do tend to get signed off a lot quicker. Yeah, you're quite right, actually. That's a very important point because it's a commercial agreement, so so it should be going through those channels, and HR should have absolutely no input because there there is no people factor because it is an outsourced service, right? (laughs) Exactly, yep. It's the provision of a service, not the provision of labour. So we're not talking bums on seats here. Yeah. Yeah, and I I think that that once the clients get their head around that point, then then I guess the the process may become easier to to get all the the detail sorted. Um, in in terms of of um of that kind of people side, then um. I guess there must be situations where HR is trying to get involved because, as you said at the start, we've had this kind of quasi way of engaging people that hasn't quite been a statement of works. Um, and so HR have been used to having an involvement. Uh, is is that the case at the moment? Are, are we seeing kind of um, uh, firms looking to, to involve people inappropriately? Yes, absolutely. And I think as the dust settles with off-payroll, and companies get their heads around what a statement of work is, mm. there'll be less engagement by HR. But at the moment, yes, they're they're sticking their noses in where they really can't. Yeah, yeah. It, that must be a hard one to to kind of manage actually and sort of say, by the way, this isn't <laughs> this isn't your job to to be involved. But that's that's in essence um uh what what really needs to happen. One of the words you've used as we've been talking about the providers of this outsource service is consultancy. Now that word can mean different things to different people and that's probably a source of confusion um, to to the customer or client mm-hmm. um, as, as much as you the contractor providing that service. Yeah no the terminology has been very very confusing in the last yeah. six months as we adapt to this new change. The word consultancy has previously been used for a PSC contractor. But I I think now as as that is kind of phasing its way out, because obviously we've had a huge fallout as we have off payroll, that term is still being used to identify the party who's providing the service to the customer. And you've got two types of consultancies. You've got a small consultancy, where um, obviously they, you know, they meet the small company's criteria, so mm-hmm. less than 10.1 million turnover and less than 50 employees. 
And in those circumstances, the off payroll rules do not apply at all. So any contractors that they engage um, to provide the services to the customer will be responsible for making their own IR35 assessments. The old old rules will apply. Then you have the medium to large size consultancies. um, And many of them have been around for many, many years, providing a statement of work. And they now have assumed more responsibility because they will become the client for the purposes of off payroll, which means they're the ones responsible for making the status determinations on any subcontractors that they engage. So in a sense, it's those medium to large size established consultancies that are bearing the brunt, I think, the, the new legislation. Yeah, yeah. So in that situation, the end customer um whether it's oh let's let's say it's one of the high street banks if they've then got a consultancy doing a big it transformation project for them um contractors engaged by that consultancy um are the responsibility of that consultancy not the high street bank um so in that scenario the high street bank has no 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 risks in relation to um, the off-payroll legislation um, for that consultancy. Have I understood that correctly? Because it's brilliant. Yes, as as long as, you know, the the SOW has been delivered on a genuine basis. Yes, yes. And that's that's what it always comes back to, isn't it? The the contract has to reflect the the kind of practicalities of what's taking place. Um, And, you know, I, I think... You you will you will have seen much more of this than than I have, but I've been hearing about statements of works that um that the arrangements um in the contract don't really reflect the reality of the situation, and it, and in that scenario there is a risk to to the client, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. So it is extremely important that it is delivered on a genuine basis, and I think that's why clients or customers are more comfortable with the established consultancies Mm. and those that are now morphing into this model because the established consultancies have been delivering true consultancy services. Um, I'm sure there's been some exceptions, but for for, for many, many years. There's nothing wrong with um, Joe Bloggs Limited being engaged in that way and, and kind of going from what was previously a personal services company type of arrangement to a statement of works. But the 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 big issue I'm picking up is the liabilities involved. And it's it's a massive change and and you know having to indemnify the customer against against those. And I'm still I I'm still reeling from the unlimited <laughs> liability clauses that, that, that are being snuck in. Um but yeah it's 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 actually a really big change but providing both parties understand the change from a personal services um, type of engagement to a proper outsourced service using a statement of work um, there's no real issue is there no and I think that the contracts have always been onerous the contractors have been Mm. required to indemnify previously to remedy defective work um, sometimes even Provide a yes. warranty, so there's not a real change in terms of the contractual clauses. 
I think mm. one of the challenges for these smaller consultancies has been getting the insurance because the insurance tends to be more expensive because right. obviously yeah. there's, you know, there are definitely going to be warranty periods. The yeah. uh, payment is made on a fixed price basis. So the consultancy can't even pay his, well, needs to pay his subs in the meantime. He, he could be waiting for payment for a long time. So he may need yeah. even to take out finance. So, um, you know, there there are certainly financial risks involved for these smaller consultancies, but the rewards mm. can be very lucrative. So, you know, yeah. that's true with all these things, You're, you know, and contractors tend to be risk takers anyway, don't they? You know, yeah. because they're, yeah. they're out on their own, they're working autonomously, they're used to being self-employed. And this is kind of just one further step in that direction. Um, yeah. Obviously taking a little bit more risk, but if you've got a good established client at the end of the day and you have specialist skills, then, you know, you are going to be, um, you know, very much desired by these, these clients yes. because they need the specialist skills. The projects still need to be done. So, you know, if, if they're not willing, if the end clients aren't willing to take on PSC contractors, they've got to find these specialist organizations, these consultancies to do it. Yeah, no, that, that's, a, that's a very good point. And I guess I would say to listeners, um, don't undervalue kind of the, the, what you're providing as, as an outsourced um, service. Now, I think we've covered most things that I had in mind to, to kind of go through today. Um, so, so two final things to finish. Have we missed anything? And what would be kind of your summary um, most important points for, for our listeners? Well, I think this is a huge opportunity for end clients to get their house in order yeah. and make use of what I think is a highly effective work delivery model. Yeah. But they need to educate themselves. They need to do due diligence on their supply chain. They need to ensure that the contractual documentation is appropriate, that they've got a robust MSA that is <laughs> easy to read and, you know, is reasonable. There's change control process, and obviously the SOW is structured correctly. Um, the more robust the SOW, the more likely it is to be a genuine outsourced mm -hmm. agreement as, as opposed to the provision of labor. They need to ensure that the working practices reflect what's in the contract. Um, I think there needs to be transparency and visibility throughout the supply chain, which assists with compliance. Uh, the client needs to accept anyone to do the work by the consultancy as long as they've got the skills and qualifications to do so. Yeah. And they can get involved in doing SDSs or IR35 assessments. Is that that will definitely muddy the water. Yeah, okay. That's quite a handy checklist actually <laughs> that you've that you've just given there. So I um, massively um appreciate that. Huge thank you so much for joining us today, Carla. It's always really interesting to hear about things from, from the coalface from your perspective. Um I'm sure we'll get you on again um in the not too distant future. But but thank you so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure, Julia. Really Thank you for listening to Empowering Agency Workers, hosted by Julia Kermode. For more information on today's discussion, please visit iwork.co.uk, where you can also join our growing community. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and if you did, then we would love you to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. We'll be back at the same time next week.